This is with the second pick, Steve Francis, the inflammatorily niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast where we keep the memory of our beloved squad alive by repeatedly watching torturously bad 1990s basketball games and talking about them at a granular level of detail that defies expectation and logic. I'm Jeremy Allingham, and for today's episode, the Vancouver Grizzlies are in Boston to play one of the NBA's all-time greatest franchises, except that this edition of the Celtics is anything but great. I'm here with a man whose golf swing could never be described as pretty, and yet seems to kick my ass every time we're out on the course. It's Justin McElroy. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing good, Jeremy. I am right now 100 meters or so away from where NBA basketball was played last night, as a matter of fact. Uh, Raptors had their seemingly once every five years preseason game yesterday at Rogers Arena, bringing with it the semi-annual speculation of whether Vancouver deserves an NBA team or not. Whether they do or not is a question uh, for others. Today, we go back in time as we do to the depressing, perhaps the most depressing season of the Vancouver Grizzlies in their six years. And I know there's lots of competition for that when you never win more than 30 games in a season. But we're talking about season three, where it looks in the offseason like they're building some momentum that they've got in a key to, to point guard in Antonio Daniels. They've got in a veteran power forward in Otis Thorpe. When we last left this team, they were 10 and 19, having just lost to the Utah Jets the NBA finalists that year in a tough competitive game. And since then, they have lost, lost again, lost again, lost. You know where I'm going. They have lost all nine games since we picked them back up on January 15th, 1998. They are now 10 and 28 going into, you can't say the Boston Garden at this point. It's now the Fleet Center in Boston with a team that, as you said, is uh, mediocre, but still better than Vancouver at this point. Yeah, they've lost 11 in a row at this point, and uh, I did the math, and they're losing the games by an average of 11 points per game, and only one of those games uh, were they within five points of their opponent, and that was the Jazz game that we uh, last covered. This is dreadful, depressing stuff from a dreadful and depressing franchise. Uh, for their part, the Boston Celtics have also lost a bunch in a row, five to be exact, and they come into the action at 16 and 19 to the starting lineups. For the Vancouver Grizzlies, it's a pretty, uh, pretty standard-looking uh, starting lineup that we've come to expect, and that's big country in the middle. Otis Thorpe at power forward, Sharif Abdurrahim at the small forward, Sam Mack at shooting guard, and that rookie, the aforementioned rookie, Antonio Daniels at the point. And for the Boston Celtics, we've got uh, on the surface what looks like a c- couple really solid uh, pieces in Antoine Walker, Chauncey Billups, then the depth really drops off for the Celtics. We've got Ron Mercer, Walter McCarty, who ended up having a few decent seasons, and Andrew DeClerc. It is grim for this team, a bunch of not even remember that guy, but oh, that 
I suppose, maybe. But yeah, <laughs> let, let's talk about Travis Knight and Greg Miner. Uh, th- this is a team that, as you said, Boston is so used to being a perennial contender that the announcers for this game, and it's always a joy for us of who are the road announcers, because that tends to be the broadcast that we get, or the, the non-Grizzlies team, I should say. Uh, and they perhaps are less than enthused in their delivery of this one. Yeah, we've got a couple of legends here, Mike Gorman and Tommy Heinsohn. And uh, interesting thing is when, when I saw the names and I heard them first sign on, I went, oh, yeah, okay, I was delighted. I was excited to see what they uh, brought to the table. And I've got to say, I feel like they were a bit nonplussed at not only the quality of the Celtics team that year, but of course of the visiting Vancouver Grizzlies who'd lost 11 in a row. Uh, they did not bring a whole ton of excitement. And in fact, uh, a bit of disdain uh, crept into the broadcasting for both teams from these guys. And one more thing on the Boston Celtics front is when you're looking at that starting lineup, you have to re- remember that we've got Chauncey Billups, a rookie, Ron Mercer, a rookie, Antoine Walker, second year, Walter McCarty, second year, Andrew DeClerc, third year. So, you know, we're really talking about a squad that's been ripped down to the studs and they're trying to build, uh, build something back with, uh, you know, would-be superstar head coach Rick Pitino. Which means this is a game that in some ways is for the Grizzlies taking. And immediately in the first quarter, they turn on the gas. We have uh, Reef effortlessly from the post, blowing past a defender, getting a dunk. Abdurrahim, a power player, can put it on the floor. What a nice move. We have Daniels making an open jumper. We have Thorpe getting an easy layup and then a second easy layup underneath. It's 8-2 within the blink of an eye. And the Grizzlies in the first going are looking pretty good. And as we'll come to understand very quickly here, this is a Bryant Reeves game. This is big country's big night out in Massachusetts. In this first quarter, he's got a baseline seven-footer, nothing but net. Inside to Reeves, and he bangs it home. Boy, he just camped out in the paint there. Spread out. Off an offensive rebound, put back dunk. He does a silky back shoulder, 12-foot fade, and it's money. Pivot to the middle, he's fouled. He's living at the free throw line. Tommy Heinsohn begs the question. Now, this guy, is he going to be a championship-type center? I don't think there's a finer player in the league right now for understanding what the low post is and how to utilize it. But he's not a leaper, but he's learning how to use his bulk to control the boards. And so far, he's done a reasonably decent job getting the ball inside and rebounding. Is he a championship-level center? And tonight, but only tonight, you might be forgiven for thinking yes, a thousand times yes. Country looks amazing. He finishes the first quarter, 13 points, five rebounds on five of five from the field, and three of three from the free throw line. The the fascination that announcers always have with Big Country, even now in his third season, continues to delight me. And part of it is because he will have these games where he shows all of that potential coming through, uh, just that silkiness down low. They say plenty of times at this game, Gorman and Heisen, uh, about how just his poise in the low post, his ability to pass out, how he does 
have uh, I know we talk generally about one or two moves that he does but th- that he does have dexterity to go both ways with the basket there uh and for their part the Celtics are just not doing much in terms P-U. of penetration. <laughs> They're not penetration. Uh, Heisen at one point uh, says Walker has such a firm belief in his dribbling ability that he doesn't want to pass it, which is tremendous shade. It is a game <laughs> where, at least in the first quarter, we are getting a steady diet of big country layups, and the Celtics are responding with a bunch of bricks from 15 feet away. The offense is a Borrant for the Celtics. They shoot five for 28 in the first quarter. The arena, I mean, describing the arena as dead would be an overstatement or maybe an understatement, I guess you would say. Like, it's almost as though there was 15 guys in the arena, like it was a practice or an inter-squad game. Like, there's nothing happening in the arena. Boston has no zest or zeal on the offensive end. They're offering no resistance at the rim. It really looks sad for them out there during this first quarter. And Vancouver comes out of the first quarter leading 27 to, yes, 13 for Boston. Antoine Walker goes 0-4-11 in that first quarter. If you want to look at one ray of light for the Celtics, they get 10 offensive rebounds to two for the Grizzlies, and that'll play in later on. But at this point, you're thinking, man, big country, 13 points in the first quarter, seemingly unstoppable. The Celtics not being able to make any offense happen, even if you eliminate Antoine Walker. When Walter McCarthy is your strength, things are looking grim. But it's just one quarter. We've got three to go. But before before that, we have our first quarter segment. NBA time machine. Danger, danger, danger. So we've talked a little bit about this already, just how the are young players for the Celtics. They are not at this point having much of uh, a reputation around them. Uh, they may be hungry, uh, but whether they're good is another question. Uh, th- let's go through th- this lineup and quickly t- talk about whether they could still play, beginning with the one that arguably is the easiest call because he's in the perennial debate of whether he should make the Hall of Fame, Chauncey mm. Billups. Yeah, so Chauncey Billups, he comes out here. He's uh, in his rookie season. He has an awesome lightning bolt cut into the front of his haircut. He's looking cool. He actually has a lot of spring and athleticism. He's super raw, though. He doesn't really know when to attack, when to lay back, when to distribute. Um, and he, you know, you can tell he's got... Uh, kind of like a tough, aggressive mindset, and he has that explosiveness, but he just hasn't quite figured out the NBA get, uh, the NBA game yet. But of course, we're only about halfway into his rookie season, so that uh, isn't really to be expected. I mean, the answer is, of course, yes, he would end up being an NBA player. A nice comparison to do here, a nice juxtaposition, is actually putting rookie Chauncey Billups up against rookie Antonio Daniels. And even though Billups is bricking a lot of shots, turning the ball over a bit, I think you take the approach that he brings to the game a hundred times out of a hundred over Antonio Daniels, who's a bit more tentative, um, doesn't, he, I mean, not, not only does he not know how to pick his spots, he doesn't pick many spots at all. At least Billups is kind of balls to the wall, explosive and attacking, which you really appreciate about um, a rookie point guard. Um, you know, he ends up being a three-time All-NBA player through his career, but he never averages 20 points per game, and he's below seven assists a game in 15 of his 17 seasons. So 
I think I would make the argument that he wouldn't have quite as much of an illustrious career if playing now, but I think I'd give him like a comparison of either like poor, poor man's Chris Paul or like a rich man's Tyus Jones. Van Fleet, maybe he shoots a few more threes. Keep in mind, Billups uh, shot sometimes 42, 43% from beyond the arc uh, in 2005, 2006, when the three was less utilized. The other big player for the Celtics, one who was an all-star several times in his uh, career, but flamed out of the NBA by the time he was just a scant 31 years old, Antoine Walker. And, you know, we've set this up by talking about his 0-4-11 in the first quarter. (laughs) This, he's an interesting player, and you do wonder just whether he would have been able to adapt to today's modern game. Well, my first thought when I went to do this, the notes on this part was, well, Antoine Walker is a six foot eight stretch four who can shoot. Hell yes, he's going to be in in today's NBA. But then I said to myself, well, just wait a second. Can he shoot? And that becomes the big question here. And well, let me tell you, uh, in this season, he shoots 31% from three on four attempts a game. He shoots 42% from the field on 21 shots a game. For his career, he ends up shooting 33% from three and 41% from the field. And he's a bad free throw shooter, 63% on the career from the free throw line. So you know, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he doesn't make the NBA. Like I think his level of, um, his build, his physicality, his, his physique is too tantalizing for scouts to pass up on, but I don't think he ever really would end up being an all-star the way that he was three times in his career. Um, you know, maybe if the right people get their hands on him, maybe he becomes more of a Kevin Love, a rebounder, um, a guy who can shoot from outside, but probably much more like P.J. Washington, kind of a a run-of-the-mill stretch four who kind of plays for a non-winning team? I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, I think about the 2005-2006 heat where Walker was on and where he ended, he was sort of like the sixth, seventh guy on the team, not expected to contribute a ton. But then in the playoffs, he averaged 38 minutes for the team, was their third highest score next to D-Wade and Shaq. Didn't look completely out of place. I think, you know, he commits to his fitness more uh, in this game. He is that stretch player. Is he shooting a in shots in any quarter anywhere no absolutely but he, if he can keep defenses honest play adequate defense uh, you know i think there's still a room in the rotation for a guy like that uh, is there anyone else from the celtics that we even remotely need to talk about here oh yeah we can rip through him here just a little bit just quickly ron mercer uh, i remember being a bit of a fan of his when he came out of uh, kentucky in the late 90s and when you look at him he's kind of got that silky smooth athleticism but you, you also, same thing as Antoine Walker. He ends up in situations where he's just jacking 14-plus attempts in his first five seasons when he's maybe not seasoned. So I kind of uh, chalked him up to maybe like a Johnny Davis or a James Book night where it's like a lot, of, um, a lot of upside that kind of never maybe fills out or never comes to fruition. And then um, Walter McCarty, a 6'10 stretch forward. I mean, he ends up playing 600 games or close to 600 games in his career, but... This is the type of guy that I think probably lasts longer in today's NBA. Like he actually shot 35% from three for his career. So I'm thinking maybe like a Chris Boucher or a Trey Lyles type player. 
Yeah, and then you have Dana Barrows as well, just going to plug 41% from beyond the arc in his career, 86% free throw to shooter. The advanced uh, stats show that he is not the worst at the end of the day when it comes to defense, so was a net positive there in several seasons. He could play as well. Interestingly, they have Bruce Bowen before he becomes the dirty defensive stopper we know and love with the San Antonio Spurs or hate, depending if you're how much you're a Steve Nash fan. But uh, certainly for the most of the players we are seeing for the Celtics on this game, not the type that you would see. But we're seeing a lot of them in this game. On to the second quarter, Jeremy. And uh, the Celtics don't exactly start picking it up on offense, but on defense, they continue to do something we saw in the first quarter. Yeah, and so the, this really it boggles the mind, and I do, as soon as I saw it, I remembered. Um, off of every make, which was not very often in the first quarter, but a little bit more in the second quarter, off of every make, the Boston Celtics are doing a full-court man-to-man press, like full-on denying the inbound, sticking with, like even when uh, Antonio Daniels or Lee Mayberry gets it, going one-on-one, man-to-man, the whole length of the basketball court. And this is like straight out of, you know, grade eight, boys or girls, high school basketball, where where the other team doesn't know how to dribble or pass, so a good team can beat them 90 to three type of thing. Or, you know, out of more of like uh, NCAA basketball of the 90s, where teams would just try to run the other team off the floor with defensive pressure. Let's just say it doesn't work. It really, really, really doesn't work, especially in the first half. The Grizzlies are breaking this press so easily, and they do that by just head manning the ball, really. Like, they've basically, if, if they have the ball on the right side, they have the person on the wing up in the front court, just runs back to the middle of the floor, they hit the, the man in the middle, and they just have repeated odd man it's situations. It's just three on two again two, and again. Yeah, two on one, three on one, three on two, over and over and over, and they're making layups, and even more importantly, they're just getting to the free throw line. The Grizzlies take 22 free throws in the first half of which 13 were big country and the Celtics only get seven. And usually when you see a disparity like that, you go, Oh man, what's up with the refereeing? No, no, no. This is just completely born from the fact that the Celtics are putting on this weak ass press, Patino refuses to take it off at any point during the game. And it's a layup line slash free throw line. And the Grizzlies are really feasting off this weak press. They're feasting mostly in uh, the first quarter and a little bit in the in the second on this. But it's interesting. This is the last time that an NBA team had plays full press as their de facto defense, essentially, in the NBA. We never see it again. And part of it, you know, might be that, you know, the Celtics don't exactly have the horses to carry this out. Uh, Part of it, too, is just like it is very easy for teams, if they know that it's coming, to develop some sort of strategy against it. And it's not like the Vancouver Grizzlies are led by a Steve Kerr-level acumen on the offensive end when it comes comes to designing up plays it is like you said very simple uh antonio daniels and lee mayberry are just finding the right guy coming back a little bit but still it becomes 
you know, we've watched a lot of uh, mid-90s, late-90s NBA games at this point. This one at least gives us a little bit of unpredictability. But, you, you know, you say that the Grizzlies are handling this well. Actually, though, in the first half of the second quarter, it is the Celtics that start coming back a little bit. Antoine Walker goes four for five in the second quarter. McCarty has to kick it back out. Nice look for Walker. And it's gone. An unlikely first shot to make, but he makes it. Gets a nice finger roll while falling down. We get another Blue Edwards brick. Phillips gets to Walker on the break. Halfway through the second, the Celtics are on a 17-6 run. And I should, uh, since we were talking about the press and I heard you mention Blue Edwards there, we just had the most Blue Edwards moment of Blue Edwards moments. And that was off of the press. Uh, the Grizzlies broke it with ease. And Blues got a wide open three against the uh, the odd man situation. And instead of shooting the three-point field goal, takes nice one little dribble to an 18-footer clank. The Blue Edwards experience, everyone. Um, yes, yeah, so the, the, the Celtics have a little bit of uh, momentum here. And oddly, it's from two guys you may never have heard of and may never hear from again. We've got forward John Thomas hitting the boards, making a couple baskets, getting to the free throw line, and Greg Miner. He's making shots from inside the key, and if those two are your best players uh, for the Boston Celtics, that kind of tells the tale of the first half. And alert, alert, we have a Roy Rogers sighting. Roy <laughs> Rogers comes off, of course, has just come from the Grizzlies last year to the Boston Celtics, and he plays one minute and one second in the second quarter, and that's that for Roy Rogers. So at least we got to, to uh, lay our eyes on our beautiful Roy there. We didn't get uh, any dated TV illusions, uh, th though, so that was a little bit disappointing. But the Grizzlies uh, pull back away a little bit in the second half of the second quarter, and it comes, as you said, on a lot of these free throws, and a lot of them come from uh, big country. He, overall, in this second quarter, makes 8 of 10 from the line. Thorpe, with 19 seconds left, makes a two-foot layup on a nice little pass from big country. Ball came back out, split to Thorpe, then Otis was one of those patented finger rolls of his. Uh, at the end of the second uh, half, the Grizzlies, they're no longer up by 14 points, but they are up by 8 points, 52-44. The Celtics are showing signs of life, but again, the Grizzlies are getting to the free throw line enough that it's not mattering too much at this point. Big country, 25 points, 8 rebounds in the first half. The big boy... The big, beautiful boy, I should say, an absolute unit in the first half. It was fun to watch. I mean, a bit of a free throw parade, but also he really had that touch looking good. And as you said earlier, like you can see why he kind of uh, captures the imagination of some of those uh, road announcers because he really looks good tonight. And, you know, you could imagine him playing for a good team in the playoffs, even if he was the third or fourth or fifth best guy. Or you could imagine him kind of anchoring a half-decent offense of a team who has a little bit more talent. But uh, as we know, these nights only came along every so often. Uh, and they come along uh, much less often after this season. But that's another story for another episode. Uh, we are halfway through this game, which means it is time for our next segment. What did Stu do now? <laughs> And Jeremy, this game is happening on January 15th, 1998, which means that uh, just 72 hours before this, we said goodbye 
to a beloved member of the Vancouver Grizzlies, an inaugural member of the Vancouver Grizzlies, one player who had made so many important contributions through so many games, thick and thin for this team, (laughs) that he is on the tip of the tongue of every fan when you talk about what, no, not absolutely. They finally released fucking Doug Edwards after two and a half seasons of doing jack shit for this team. And Jeremy, I know we've talked talked about Doug Edwards in a past episode, but let's just do a basic recap for people who might have remember who might have forgotten about his immense contributions to Vancouver. So cue the music. I will remember you. Will you remember me? Don't let your life. Yeah, um let's just say there was no montage for Doug Edwards. Um it's funny when you look at his basketball reference page it goes Atlanta, Atlanta, and Vancouver. Three seasons. Well, the story that that uh, kind of box score stat line belies is the fact that Doug Edwards was a member of the Grizzlies for one, two, three, four seasons, wherein he made close to $4 million, actually over $4 million, but he only played 31 games in the 95-96 season, but just sat there for the other three seasons, making $3.3 million to sit on the bench. And the thing I don't get is what was it about that first season? 31 games, 17 minutes a game, three points, three rebounds, one assist that made Stu just so badly want to hold on to this guy. Like, would there not have been some benefit to just sending him to the waiver wire or whatever it may be? And then you start to read some of the newspaper clippings and I know you're going to get to this, but I do want to point out one quote from this guy, which I think, you know, points to maybe some level of toxicity in uh, the March 4th, 1997 province article on Doug Edwards. He's quoted and he says, and I guess the, re- the reporters asking him, how's the rehab going? How much, how much closer are you to being back on the court? Quote, you know, me, no comment as usual trainer can tell you about my condition i don't know what it is unquote and it was and it was like that every two or three months where a reporter for the vancouver sun or province would go hey doug edwards continues to be sort of injured and there continues to be no uh, update on his progress and then it would be a really weird and coded sort of uh, article that would appear where it's like nobody wants to talk on the record but you'll see lots of eye rolls or muttered words and it gives all the impression that this was a toxic player that if not you know you don't want to say faked their injury but didn't do anything to work with the team to make things better and yet there he was on the sidelines night after night not contributing to the team but not being released and uh, you know again we have to ask why the grizzlies to begin with picked this guy in the expansion draft 24th overall when he had four count him four seasons of guaranteed money left to go because the Hawks signed him to that original six-year deal when he was drafted in the first round 15th overall and I get that there's no proper time to cut bait 
per se, and that teams can sometimes think about sunk costs, and the Grizzlies would have had to pay that salary to begin with, but it was a stupefying question as to why they selected him in the first place. It was a stupefying question as to why they kept him on after that first season, again after a second season, and then when he's released, you can see the articles being like, finally, the Doug Edwards experience is over, uh, Stu being sort of nonchalant of it, well, it didn't work out, and now we can see what happens for the rest of his career. He, in fact, never plays another NBA game. He, in fact, through the NBA Players Association, files a grievance against the Grizzlies for a being released. We don't get any sort of details in the media on that, so we're never, I'm not sure exactly how that played out. But we talk all the time about the worst decisions that the Grizzlies has ever made, and we talk about Steve Francis or Steve Nash or, or Big Country Reeves or any number of things. Doug Edwards always has to be near the top of that list. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the main um, the na- the main theme of this segment is Stu Jackson's ineptitude and incompetence. But I think right below that theme, or following that theme quite closely, is Stu Jackson's hubris and his unwillingness to acknowledge when he has fucked up, and clearly. He fucked this up with Doug Edwards. It was a bad pick. Like you said, the lack of acknowledgement of picking a player that maybe you don't know too much about or enough about who has this much money and time left on a contract and that unwillingness to look yourself in the mirror, swallow the tough pill and say, you know, I got to take my medicine on this and this was a bit of a mistake, but it's time to get rid of this guy and just move forward. But no, he sat there for season upon season upon season. Just, I mean, really, in a way, like, obviously, I don't want to overstate this, but it's a bit of a, like, he's haunting. He's haunting the team. He's just, he's always there, never playing. It's always a question that doesn't have an answer. It's just kind of like, it's hovering over the team, and there's never... It's just one of those tiny things yes. around a team that is a net negative of him not playing and having to answer these questions, and people, other players wondering, well, if he can dock it like this, why can't I? And it's, again, not something that ever gets on the front page of talking about the Grizzlies' failures, but it's emblematic. But now that they've released him, things can only look up, right? Of course, <laughs> just like we're looking up in the second half, right, Justin? Uh, the third quarter begins with uh, Tommy Heisen actually saying something really smart and then really bizarre all at the same time. Take a listen. To me, was three, uh, actually four of the uh, starters played 19 minutes or more. That's a lot of minutes against the press team. So the stamina gap may develop in the fourth quarter. We need it. That's how we beat the Russians, the missile gap. I'm not sure what a press defense has to do with the Cold War and beating the USSR, but whatever the case may be, it is true that the Grizzlies play their starters a lot in the first half. They only play eight players this entire game, run out their same horses in the third, and they don't quite have that same snap to them in the beginning of the third quarter. We get uh, a country brick, we get Sam Mack missing a three and then an easy layup. Meanwhile, Antoine Walker is starting to feel it a little bit. Antoine wanted the ball inside. Thomas couldn't make the entry pass. Now Antoine has to come out for it. Ducks down three. Antoine. Two more. And Antoine's offense is starting to pick up. 13 
as they have been in a long time. 54, 51. He makes a three. He makes another long two. There's a John Thomas lap. It's an 11-2 run for the Boston Celtics to start the third quarter. And suddenly they are ahead 55-54. to yeah, and I have them in my notes here. Is the press maybe starting to work a little bit? I don't want to give in too much of it because, I mean, I guess it's hard to make tangible, like, okay, how tired were the Grizzlies? When did their flight get in? Were they just in bad shape and the, the press put them in a bad spot? But you can see with your eyes uh, that Antonio Daniels is either tired or just acting a bit lazy with the basketball. He has a turnover. Sharif kills his dribble once or twice and then throws a bad pass. Little trap on Daniels, he gets it to Thorpe. They find Abdur Rahim inside to Reeves, couldn't make the clean catch. And he can credit John Thomas again. In the third quarter alone, the Grizzlies have six turnovers and they only end up with three free throw attempts. So. Some of the stats here point to the fact that maybe that press is starting to wear them down a bit. And then you have the Grizzlies kind of leaning on old faithful, the old crutch that uh, we've been talking about for two and a half seasons now. And that is post entry after post entry after post entry after post, post entry, entry after, after post, post entry, entry. <laughs> uh it is just again and again whether they and i don't know whether it's because uh antonio daniels and lee mayberry are just not elite shall we say point guards i don't know how much of it is brian hill and we'll get to that but it's just a lack of imagination look in a game where big country is cooking and where sharif is still sharif you know we haven't talked about him a lot this game at the end of this he you know he's two for two in both of his shots in this third quarter overall he's a tidy six and nine from the field but defenses can figure out what is going on and when you only have two players that are really doing any sort of creating of the offense it starts to stick out like a sore thumb at a certain point however for the Grizzlies because again this is a game where they're cooking a little bit we get a nice big country layup to retake the league then we get a reef dunk then Country steals it. Then Reef gets an and one. Abdul Rahim trying to spin. Comes up, finds room, gets two, and he'll get to the line. That was a big-time move. Thorpe gets a layup. It's a 9-0 run. Suddenly, they're back up at a comfortable 63-55 lead. They're back in it, baby. And let's just keep with our, uh, our Bryant Reeves point counter because he's on the way to a special milestone here he finishes the third quarter with eight points meaning he's at 33 after three quarters and as you say the Grizzlies a little bit of a counter punch after falling asleep a bit in the first half of the third quarter that being said, uh, the Celts uh, aren't going away at this point. Uh, we get Antoine Walker making a 17-footer. Then a minute later, he makes another 17-footer. It's the Antoine Walker experience, ladies and gentlemen. The Celtics down 12 after one quarter, down eight after two quarters, and after three quarters, after Travis Knight jump shot, are down Four points, 71 to 67 after three. They're cutting in bit by bit. And if you're the Vancouver Grizzlies, you have to be a little bit worried now what's going to happen. That's right. And that leads us to our third quarter segment. Better know a grizzly. So for this edition of Better Know a Grizzly, we thought we'd take a bit of a closer look 
at the slickster on the sidelines, Brian Hill, who was hired uh, in the offseason heading into the 97-98 Vancouver Grizzlies season, uh, a coach who brought with him a great deal of expectation and hope after a lot of success in his first stint as an NBA head coach. But uh, hearkening back to Brian Hill's humble beginnings, he grew up in East Orange, New Jersey. One great tidbit of note from a Gary, uh, Gary Mason article in the Vancouver Sun, his dad was once the sparring partner of Jack Sharkey, former heavyweight champion of the world, which I thought was pretty cool to hear, uh, to take you a bit through his coaching experience he starts out in high school and then he ends up at lehigh in pennsylvania for eight years doesn't really sparkle there has only one season above 500 ends up being an assistant coach at penn state then an assistant with the atlanta hawks for four seasons then an assistant with the orlando magic from 1990 to 93 then he ends up being the head coach of the orlando magic from 1993 to 1997 and you may remember this is obviously a, quite a famous stretch in NBA history because he ends up coaching Shaquille O'Neal and Anthony Hardaway, takes the team to the NBA Finals in his second season, and then loses in the conference finals in his third season. Um, all in, he goes 50 and 32, 57 and 25, and 60 and 22 in his first three seasons as an NBA head coach. So you can see why this guy comes in with such a great um such a great kind of pedigree and like I said very high expectations but then the 96 97 season hits and the magic go 24 and 25 in their first 49 games of the season and there's a bit of a mutiny and uh, as the story goes it sounds like Penny Hardaway led that mutiny and Brian Hills fired uh, I know this was a tough pill for him to swallow and it's talked about how that was kind of like a sore point for him uh, later on in his career. And so he comes over to the Vancouver Grizzlies and um, well, we know it doesn't go very well there. He goes 19 and 63 this season, eight and 42 in the shortened season and four and 18 in 99, 2000. Can't wait for that one. Brian Hill. One other thing I should mention, because we did get that nice feature on him from uh, Gary Mason. There's a really heartrending story about his daughter having cystic fibrosis. And the part that kind of resonated for me was how his kid had this really challenging um, diagnosis and, and medical issue, but man, he's just on the road. He's away all the time. And it kind of, I don't know, it, it reminds you that these people who choose this life, like obviously they're choosing it for themselves, but you know, there is some, uh, some human cost of people pursuing these kind of high profile jobs to, to chase their dreams in the big leagues. But, uh, I feel like you could do a whole podcast series on stuff like that, but that was an interesting story. Maybe we'll post that, uh, Mason story to our Twitter when it's all said and done. When Brian Hill was hired by the Grizzlies, after people might remember Stu Jackson took over as the head coach, the hubris of Stu after firing Brian Winters halfway through the second season, it was seen, you know, there was a debate about it. On one hand, this was seen as a get. Here's a guy who has gotten to the NBA Finals in just the last three seasons, a guy that has coached superstars, who has coached young players that they want to see developed, like your Shaqs, like your Penny Hardaways, 
into elite players and people at the time obviously you know it's not like they were comparing big country to Shaq but there was a sense that this is a guy that knows how to develop talent on the other hand there was the question of was that player's revolt with the Orlando Magic a symptom of a guy that couldn't actually work with these uh, guys as well as maybe we had thought and whether ultimately the Magic were a team where at the time people thought that Shaq and Hardaway were two future the NBA Hall of Famers. It turned out only one of them was going to be, but the question over whether ultimately Brian Hill was someone that was just brought along by elite talent or whether he could create his own firmament and own success without having those sort of elite players. We end up seeing, of course, with Vancouver that that is not the case, that he's not able to take a below average team to an average team, let alone an above average team or a great team. Seems like a nice guy, doesn't seem moody at all, seems to understand, and he says at the beginning that he knows what he's getting into by being hired in Vancouver. Never seems to, to turn on the media, never seems to turn on too many uh, of the players, although he does get into a fight with Anthony Peeler in that very first preseason, you know, foreshadowing his eventual trade request and leaving. But again, the problems with the Grizzlies in uh, this third season, and we'll see whether it continues during the fourth where Brian is still there and the fifth where he is eventually fired when the team is 4-18 and 18 to start the season, is a lack of imagination on offense, a lack of effort on defense, particularly on the boards, the inability to come up with a consistent rotation that can work in any way for, for the players, and uh, these core pieces not developing. Sharif does not really develop as uh, from what we see in his first couple seasons. Big country regresses. Antonio Daniels, uh, Brian Hill pushes him out there game after game, and it is by everyone's account an acknowledged disaster. Uh, and so again, this becomes another situation where it is on Stu Jackson and uh, where you go he made a choice was it a net positive or negative Brian Hill as lovely as a backstory as he has as nice of a guy as he seems to be for most people is not the person that ends up turning the key to make this team better not at all I mean yeah all that hope all that expectation is absolutely dashed it never ends up anywhere and uh, that is the Vancouver Grizzlies story fan but could this be a rare victory for Brian Hill, for the Vancouver Grizzlies? They are still up by four going into the fourth quarter. But there's a graphic that comes on screen very early on, and it shows that the Celtics have had 76 shots after three quarters compared to just 47 for the Grizzlies. The announcer's going crazy saying that at some point this has to turn around, that this sheer dominance that the Celtics have on the boards when it comes to seals and turnovers are going to turn out. And sure enough, we start seeing it early on in the fourth. Walker hits a three to take the lead, 72 to 71. Antonio Daniels gets an ugly turnover. Chauncey Billups gets a layup. Billups to the basket. Oh, Chauncey! We get another to Antonio Daniels boots it. Walker gets a turnaround. Celtics are up 81 to 79. And the Grizzlies offense is just country, country, country. And he's doing great, but that's about it. Yeah, and this is where, you know, 
often you have to look yourself in the mirror and wonder, why am I yelling at an NBA game from 1998? But hey, this is the life that we've chosen. Um, the first yell and the lesser of the two yells, but it happened a few times, was the defensive rebounding by the Vancouver Grizzlies is unforgivably bad. They give up seven offensive rebounds in the fourth quarter alone and 25 offensive rebounds overall in the game. And Boston is getting free throws and dunks and layups on the offensive glass. It's all effort. And you and I were talking about this in the production meeting. There's really no excuse for this. We have big country who's as big as a freaking house. We've got Otis Thorpe, whose whole reputation is about being like a big, strong, long dude who can control the boards. We've got Sharif Abdurrahim, who's incredibly athletic, long, six foot nine. There's no reason they should be getting beat up this bad on the offensive glass. And, you know, I, re I rewound a few plays to kind of say, okay, what's happening here? Is this something technical? Is this something structural? And, you know, I found a couple little tidbits here and there, but I got to tell you overall, this is about effort. This is about giving a shit and caring about the small details and just putting your ass into another player, boxing them out and getting that board. And they just refuse to do it. Uh, I will say there's effort, obviously. There's just so many times where there's a soft gap in between the players where the shot comes up as well, and they're just not anticipating quick enough. Also, part of it, you know, we talk about effort in the fourth quarter. It might be because of being tired. I don't know why you have Otis Thorpe playing 41 minutes a game at the age that he's in, and George Lynch, who is a solid player at this point in time based on the advanced stats and will play as a solid rotation player for the Philadelphia 76ers very soon is only getting seven and a half minutes of time and Tony Massenberg isn't even getting on the court. Uh, these things matter at the end of the day when it comes to rotation. Uh, and then you just have the fact that on uh, the guards end, Blue Edwards plays six and a half minutes in this fourth quarter. And bless Blue for his service for this team. I, I don't know how you can be in this position in your third year where you're relying on him to be a key part of your fourth quarter rotation at this point in time. That's a great point, and I did note that Blue and Pete Chilcutt were in in the fourth quarter with only eight minutes remaining in a tight ball game that's going back and forth, and in a game where, as a coach and as a team, you can probably see the momentum shifting a bit, and you can see your energy sagging a bit, and good God, maybe this press is working. Maybe Rick Pitino is the brilliant practitioner and, and uh, the brilliant coach that uh, we don't want to give him credit for, but... Yeah, they've got Blue in there. They've got Pete Chilcutt in there. And it's starting to swing the other way as the game enters its final moments. And what ends up happening is we see a player who's really looked rough most of the game, whose effort has been there, but whose execution has not been. And that's Chauncey Billups. He comes up big right at the end of the game for the Boston Celtics. Yeah, Billups uh, makes a nice two-point layup for the Celtics to, to cut into the lead. Then uh, he gets a nice, with four minutes left, he gets another layup to take the lead 87 to 85. He's hounding the Grizz, and particularly poor Sam Mack on defense. He makes a three-pointer with 2.14 left to get the Celtics up by five points. Johnson. 
and the Grizzlies are not really responding anyway, with the exception of one player, our beloved big fella, who is setting an all-time franchise record in this fourth quarter. Yeah, big country ends up with 41 points on the game, and the big guy even takes a charge in the waning moments of the fourth quarter off Ron Mercer that Tommy Heinsohn is very quick to call a flop. Offensive foul on Mercer. and possibly was but hey the big guys laying it on the line and you know what the Grizzlies battle all I mean it's weird because there were points in this game where it felt like the Grizzlies were up 25 or or should have been up 25 but it was only ever a max of 10 12 maybe 13 14 points right as it was at the end of the first quarter what ends up happening is the Celtics kind of just hit their shots at the perfect moment at the end of the game here they take the lead But the Grizzlies are hanging around. Blue Edwards, the guy that we don't think should be out there, he gets to the free throw line. He makes it 92-89. to They're still in this. There's more time left on the game clock than there is the shot clock. There's 38 seconds, to be precise. So a lot of time, actually. A lot of time. Tons of time. So all they got to do is get a stop, get a board, call a timeout, drop a nice play, and get as clean of a look from three that you can get, or, you know, quick two, try and get fouled, whatever. But let's just say there's an insane amount of time to be very calm and measured and to make sure that you get that defensive stop. But what do the Grizzlies do? And I foreshadowed my screaming. This one, they intentionally one the- foul, Jeremy. They intentionally <sighs> foul, and not at the beginning of the possession. They intentionally foul with nine seconds left on the clock, twenty-three seconds left in the game. So if you've ruined any chance for a two pos- to have two possessions at this point, it is baffling. I don't understand whether they decided in uh, the timeout beforehand to try and foul, and they just failed for the first fifteen seconds of the possession, and then went with nine seconds, or Blue just took it on his own initiative. But it just ruins any chance with the timing left of this game for them to have a decent chance because of this choice. Absolutely mind-numbingly stupid. I very rarely you see a play that stu- stupid in the NBA, and I like. I honestly feel like you'd you'd bench a grade nine or ten player for making this kind of mistake. I mean, look, if Brian Hill told him to foul, then that is a fuck up beyond fuck ups, and I guess it's not the player's fault. But I don't know how in a million years you'd ever tell a team to foul when all you need is one stop and then you need to go it's a one possession game. Like you just would never do that. It doesn't make sense. And Blue just he looks like he's almost like He's just a one-track mind there. Like, he just has it in his head that he needs to foul, and he absolutely hacks the Boston player. And Heinsohn and his uh, broadcast partner there, they're just like, what? Like, they they don't, like, they're almost caught off guard to the point of they almost let their kind of, like, presentational front come down, and they're, like, genuinely confused. <laughs> Vancouver is all the way down to nine seconds on the shot clock with 23 to go in the game. If you play nine more seconds of defense, you get it back with a chance to shoot a three yep. to tie. Yeah. You agree? When you get that far down, you might as well, uh, it, but you can't tell the players that. You know, I mean, this is advanced basketball we're talking about. 
And I was just like, that's that's the type of shit that just really sums up being a Vancouver Grizzlies fan. Like, we've got a chance. Let's at least give ourselves a shot here. But no, we don't even get to that point. Like that's that's what it feels like. 94-89 for the Celtics at this point. Edwards then misses a three-point jump shot uh, with nine seconds left that more or less seals the deal. Reeves gets a two-point layup to get his 40th and 41st points of the game, setting an all-time record, usurping Anthony Peeler. It is not enough. Ultimately, the Celtics, it becomes garbage time. Celtics get a couple free throws. They win the game 97-93. The Grizzlies lose their 12th game in row and after the first two seasons of epic losing streaks it's like here we go again yeah i mean this one this one hurts i mean although i feel i feel like this is our this is our like outro every single time this is our conclusion at the end of the game this one was bad justin this one was worse <laughs> than the others like but it really like this one feels like a gut punch man like they had you're, well. First of all, they 14, had them on the road. You're up 14 points after one quarter against a crummy team, and country is feeling it, and you can't make that t- into a win. No, I mean they should have had them. They had all the momentum the whole first half. They get e- either lazy or tired, and still they have the chance. And then it's the mental mistake. Like it's bad coaching, it's bad vibes, it's bad everything, and they just they blow it again the Grizzlies blow it again imagine coming up with the headlines day in and day out for the for these games like just Grizzlies blow it again unbelievable <laughs> three stars for this one uh th- third star I am going with Chauncey Billups not a great game when you look at the box score just five for 16 from the field including one for seven from beyond the arc but that one three-pointer he made was a big one sort of put it out through reach and really took over that fourth quarter when the Celtics needed it second star Antoine Walker you know 0 for 11 in that first quarter after that 10 for 15 from the field really gave uh, the Celtics just that constant flow of offense which helped them stay in the game particularly in the second and third quarters when things were looking not so great and 10 rebounds as well and first star we got to go with big country reeves statistically speaking his best game as an nba player 14 for 21 from the field 13 for 15 from the free throw line 41 points 12 rebounds just the apex of the Oh, this guy could turn into, you know, a, a borderline all-star if everything turns uh, up for this guy long-term. We never get it, but it's a nice moment here. That's what I would have for the three stars. And, like, I just feel a darkness has fallen upon me. Like, this is why we don't have a team. It's not that we lost, or at least only that we lost. It's how we lost, too. Like, these are demoralizing, terrible losses that just... They bring a stink that just kind of stays around. And I guess I'm sure these players felt it, right? And and to, to not be in a position to to close out these games or at least not be able to follow through with it, like time after time after time after time. And uh, yeah, we're only two and a half seasons in. 
Well, this is the thing with the Vancouver Grizzlies in their third season, in their fourth season, in their fifth season, and in their sixth and final season, is that they got out to not a terrible start. They win some games early on. They're 500 after six games, after eight games, after 10 games even. And you go, hey, maybe they're turning the corner here. Maybe they've got the pieces. And then eventually the thrust of the season kicks in. The losses start piling up. The lack of depth reveals itself the lack of effort on the defensive end shows itself and uh, you can see on the players you can see from the fans it's another season of this and with that this has been with the second pick steve francis for justin mcelroy i'm jeremy allingham we'll be back next time when we watch what game We've got the last dance, the 1998 Chicago Bulls. A big game uh, against Jordan and the Bulls coming up for the Grizzlies. Check it out when it comes out next time.